Thank you, Dr. Mays. Well, if you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, and if you're taking notes, you'll see the outline there in the bulletin for us. We're continuing our study on this uh, series called Lazarus and the Tulip. So as you turn to John chapter 11, I wanted to let you know that next week I will be gone to Uganda. I'm taking my 11-year-old son, Nathan, with me. We'll be in Kuba Matwe, East Africa, in Uganda, celebrating a biblical counseling conference where I'll take part and then also launching a seminary in, uh, in the village of Kuba Matwe. This has been a work of Shannon Hurley for the last 15 years. And so the fact that they've established a school and a church and now the seminary is a big deal. So the whole United States uh, SOS board will be there. And uh, we'll have Conrad Mbewe, who's a common Shepherds Conference speaker from Zambia, who will be there as well. So would you just be praying for us as we go, as we travel, as we serve, especially my boy Nate, as he's going to get to for the very first time, see what it's like to be in Uganda. He's a little bit scared, but he's a pretty tough guy, so he's going to have a good time. Well, here you are in, uh, in, in John chapter 11, John chapter 11, Lazarus and the tulip. And what I want to do this morning is continue as we're working through a series now based on the celebration of the Reformation, which we talked about a little bit last week. And so let's read where we left off in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 38 through 44, and I'll show you how this ties to our theme of tulip as we jump back into it again this morning. Here's what we read, verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Father, we come to you through the person of Christ, praying that you would enlighten our hearts today through the word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to enable us to see the doctrines of grace in a way that would shine mightily on the power and the sufficiency of the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. So be magnified and honored in this service on this day, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I told you last week, we kicked off a little bit of a series on the Reformation, and we're calling it Lazarus and the Tulip. And while the Reformation began 501 years ago on October the 31st, 1517 by Martin Luther, it was about 100 years later where the doctrines of grace were most clearly defined. If you'll remember, it was Jacob Arminius, who was a Dutch theologian who began to pull away from the Reformed tradition and began to teach that man had his own free will. Arminius taught five articles of the Remonstrance, and those five points of classical Arminianism are as follows. He taught universal, prevenient grace, conditional election, unlimited atonement, resistible grace, and the uncertainty of perseverance. And so in a response to this, theologians of the Reformed Rite called together a gathering called the Synod of Dort, and from 1618 to 1619, they debated the issues. And as a result of this debate, the Calvinists responded to the Arminians with their own theological arguments. The five core teachings of the Calvinistic uh, point of view uh, has commonly been referred to with the popular acrostic tulip. And so the clever way of summing up these five articles based on the uh, acrostic tulip would be total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, while John Calvin himself never used this acrostic, it was his followers that kind of helped form this idea of tulip to summarize Calvin's teaching. Well, what in the world does this have to do with the Gospel of John and the story of Lazarus, you might ask? 
Well, I believe that these doctrines of grace that we're talking about here began not at the Reformation or by the teaching of John Calvin or at the Synod of Dort, but I believe that these doctrines of grace began with the Bible. I believe that these doctrines are clearly taught throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. I believe that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, teaches these very doctrines, and then I think that these doctrines can be illustrated by us looking at the story of Lazarus. If you remember, in the Gospel of John, there are seven key signs, seven wonders that the Gospel shares with us. And these seven miracles not only point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, but also point to the fact that Jesus came to preach the gospel that would save his people from their sin. And Jesus' first sign in John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry, was where he turned the water into wine. And this was a miracle of transformation. This was a miracle of conversion. This was a miracle showing that Jesus was saving the very best for last when we learn of the new covenant and the new heart that Jesus gives to those whom he chooses. Please note that the water in the clay jars on that day at the wedding in Cana never asked to be turned into wine. The water on that day did not seek after Christ. The water on that day did not jump out of the pitcher and on its own come to Christ. No, Jesus sovereignly and unconditionally turned the water into wine. The water was water by nature. But the water could not resist the miracle of transformation. Jesus manufactured something new out of something old. Jesus was in control of the water every step along the way. The water had no mind of its own. And then as we come into John 11, we see the last of these seven signs, what I would say is Jesus' greatest miracle, the last of these seven signs in the gospel. This is at the very end of Jesus' ministry, and this is the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And this miracle is a stair step upward. This miracle reaches the apex of truth. This miracle is a picture of you and me being dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And in this sign, we clearly see the sovereign and the effectual and the irresistible call of the Holy Spirit that raised us from the dead. We see here the Holy Spirit at work. And so this is a picture of Jesus giving us life and enabling us to believe in his name. All the other miracles picture and portray grace in a special way, but I believe this one does so in even more vibrant colors. We see this miracle in the most ra radical and radiant brilliance of all of Christ's miracles. This sign, this wonder, this, this miracle of raising Lazarus is at the pinnacle. This is the capstone. This is the climax. This is the culmination of all Christ came to teach and to do. Now, last week, we began by looking at total depravity, and we said that the Bible teaches the corruption and pollution of sin has been passed down to every person from Adam at the fall. And because we are sinners, we have no ability whatsoever to save ourselves, right? We're dead. We are dead in our sin. And in that condition, man has no free will to choose God, but rather is a slave to his sin. He is in bondage to his sin. And there is no way out except through the sovereign grace of God. Last week, I gave you 10 characteristics of total depravity, all found in the Gospel of John. Number one, you cannot receive Jesus Christ on your own ability. Number two, you were already condemned. Number three, you love the darkness. Number four, you were under the wrath of God. Number five, you hate Christ. Number six, you are guilty and self-righteous. Number seven, you will die in your sin. Number eight, you are a slave to sin. Number nine, you are of your father, the devil. And number 10, you are lost and walking in the darkness. Welcome again to Placerita Bible Church, right? Aren't you encouraged today? But we got to know our state and our condition of our depravity if we want to see the glory of Christ in redemption and in salvation. And so this morning, we're going to tackle that second 
part of the five points of Calvinism, number two, unconditional election. And so first, let me define that doctrine of how to understand this doctrine. And in order to do that, let me give you this definition there on your screen where you can fill in a couple blanks there if you are taking notes. Unconditional election means that God does not foresee an action or condition on our part that persuades him to save us. So the whole idea here is it's unconditional. It's not based on something God sees in us or knows about us or in the future knows what we'll do. It's an unconditional election based on God's sovereign choice. There's nothing that we could ever do that would persuade us for him to choose us. Rather, election depends on God's sovereign decision to save whomever he chooses according to his divine will. Now, this goes contrary to the mainstream Christianity. It goes contrary to our nature because we want to say we had something to do with it. And what I'm saying is that the Bible teaches you had nothing to do with it. If you believe that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, then you did not own your own. Come to Christ. Rather, he made you alive together with him. And I think the, the most premier text in the Bible that teaches unconditional election is Romans chapter 9. So turn there with me, if you will, Romans chapter 9. I'm just going to have to give you a summary of Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 because my goal is to actually show you from the Gospel of John how we can also see very clearly taught from the lips of Jesus himself this doctrine of unconditional election. But in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, we read this. Paul is speaking, and he says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We'll stop right there. Hear what the Apostle Paul is saying as he gives his exposition of the doctrine of election. Paul illustrates his teaching of the doctrine of election by going back into the past of the Jewish people and looking at the circumstances surrounding the birth of the twins, Jacob and Esau. But before we get to Jacob and Esau, please notice that Romans 9 shows us the unconditional election of God over three generations. When we talk about the patriarchs, we talk about the faith of Abraham and the faith of Isaac and the faith of Jacob. God sovereignly elected all three. God elected Abraham out of the people of Mesopotamia. He called Abraham from the land of Ur, from the Chaldeans, and he picked him, and he chose him, and God elected him to be the father of the Jewish nation. There was nothing Abraham had ever done to be picked by God. God just said, I want you, Abraham, to go to the land that I will show you, and I want you to be the father of this nation. And God promised him a son in whom he would have many descendants, more descendants, mind you, than there are stars in the heaven or sand on the seashore. Abraham tried to do it naturally through Hagar, and she gave birth to Ishmael. But the descendants of Ishmael were not God's chosen people. These were children of the flesh. The children of the promise came through Isaac. And that's why Galatians chapter 4, verse 31 says, So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So what are we learning about unconditional election? God chose Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth. God chose Isaac as the child of promise, not Ishmael. And God chose Jacob, not Esau. 
just in case there are some that would argue that even though Isaac and Ishmael had the same father, which was Abraham, they had different mothers, and that's why God must have chose Isaac over Ishmael. Now we get an even more specific picture of election when we see that God makes his choice of Jacob, not Esau, for they were both of the same father, Isaac, and the same mother, Rebekah. So you can't argue that, well, one was of the Jewish and one wasn't. No, they both had, Jacob and Esau both had, same mom and the same dad. They were of the same mother. That made them womb mates. Ha, 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 ha. Now, in the ancient world, it was customary for the firstborn son to receive the inheritance or the patriarchal blessing. However, in the case of these twins, God reversed the process and gave the blessing not to the elder, but to the younger brother. The point that the apostle labors to make here is that God not only makes this decision prior to the twins' births, but he does so without a foreknowledge to anything that they would do, either good or evil, but so that the purpose of God may stand and so we got to understand here that salvation does not rest on us. doesn't matter if you're the older brother or the younger brother. It doesn't matter anything about that. What matters is God does what he wills for his own glory, and his choice of you, if you're in Christ today, solely rests on the gracious, sovereign decision of God. Now, that doesn't mean that God will save people whether they come to faith in Christ or not. You must repent. You must believe, but you cannot unless God chose you in him. And Ephesians 1 says that God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. In fact, turn with me now to Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. This is the second most premier text, I believe, in the Bible that teaches this doctrine of unconditional election and makes it abundantly clear exactly when it was that he chose you. Ephesians 1 4 and 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That means before creation, before he made the heavens and the earth, he chose you in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Please note in that text that it was God who chose. It was he who did it all according to the purpose of his will. In fact, skip down to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. My friends, it can't get much more clear than this. This is not ambiguous language. This is not, well, it's up for grabs. No, this is saying you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and it had nothing to do with you or what you would do or what you would say or how you would respond to anything. Ultimately, it had everything to do with the purpose of God according to the counsel of his will. So then on what basis does God elect to save certain people? Is it on the basis of some foreseen action, some foreseen response, some foreseen activity of the elect? No. That's why we're saying it's unconditional. Many people, the Arminians, would say that they have a doctrine of election and they have a doctrine of predestination, but they just define it differently. They would believe that in eternity past, God looked down the corridors of time. And he saw down in the future who would choose him. And based on that choice of humanity, he went back into eternity past and elected them. Now, that's what Arminians say, and it, it just doesn't jibe with the text. Nowhere in Romans 9 or in Ephesians 1 do you get that sense that's going on. It's saying, no, no, this is all God. This is all what God's doing. Many people have a trouble with that, and the reason we have trouble with that is because it just doesn't make sense right, in our mind. But Arminians would say that it's on the basis of this prior knowledge that meet this condition, and that is that expression of faith in Christ was a condition by which we were saved, and that is conditional election, which means that God extends his electing grace on the basis of some foreseen condition that human beings meet themselves. What we're teaching is unconditional election, is what I believe the Bible teaches, is that God has a divine right 
to distribute mercy when and where and on whom he desires. God says from the beginning, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is not on those who meet some condition, but on those whom he is pleased to bestow this benefit. And so this doctrine of unconditional election is not hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. Our Western mindset is so built around, I have rights, and I can do whatever I want, and that's not, what, fair. And everyone deserves an equal opportunity. And if I work hard enough, I can accomplish anything. And some of those things could be true to some degree if you're an American citizen. But that's not how Reformed theology works. And that's not how the Bible works. And that's not how the grace of God through Christ works. And so let me show you how the doctrine of unconditional election is not only taught in Romans 9 and in Ephesians 1, but let me show you how it's taught by Christ in the Gospel of John. So that next heading says how it is taught in the Gospel of John. I want to give you five ways unconditional election is taught in this Gospel. Number one, election is not based on your will, but on God's will. It's not based on your will, but on God's will. Turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Here we read this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice it says God gave the right. It wasn't according to you or your will, but according to God and his will. To become a child of God, you have to receive Jesus, but you can't receive Jesus on your own apart from the work of the Spirit because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is Ephesians 2.1. Again, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do? I mean, if you wanted to give $100 to a dead man, could he receive it? No. What if you wanted to give $1,000 to a dead man? Hey, buddy, I got $1,000 if you just come back to life. Can he receive it? No. What if you want to give a million dollars to a dead man? Surely that will get a flinch or a stir out of a dead man, right? Will he receive a million dollars? No. Why? Because he's dead. Now, I'll take your money. Hundreds, thousands, millions, I'll take it all, right? But a dead man cannot receive anything. You must be made able to receive. This is fully a work of God. A dead man doesn't have the capacity. A dead man doesn't have the ability. A dead man doesn't have any interest in receiving anything. He is dead. And so to be elected into the family of God does not depend, back to verses 12 and 13, it doesn't depend on the blood of a man or on the will of the flesh or on the will of man. It depends on the sovereign will of God. Let me explain that. When verse 13 says it's not a blood, I believe that means that it's not about your heritage. It is not about your parents. It is not about your ancestors. It's not about your bloodline. It's not about your ethnicity. So it doesn't really matter if you're of Isaac or Ishmael ethnically. What matters is that's just a picture of saying you got to be of Christ. You are not born again because you have certain genes. You're not born again by physical DNA to be a child of God. And so when verse 13 says it's not of blood, that's what it means. When it says it's not of the will of the flesh, it means that it's not according to your own human will. There is no desire or ability in your flesh that would ever cause you to become a child of God. Your flesh loves the darkness instead of the light. Your flesh is enslaved to sin. Your flesh is consumed with the fleeting pleasures of sin. You always make choices, if you want to think of it that way, in accordance with your nature and your desire. So if you want to say that your dead man can make choices, fine, but he can only choose to sin. You can just pick which type of sin you want to do, but you can't choose to serve God. You can't choose to be his on your own. God has to do that. But maybe it, you, if you want to think of it as choosing your own sin, then that's fine. But it says here that as far as salvation is concerned, it's not on your bloodline, it's not on the will of the flesh, and it's not on the will of man. If the will of the flesh might mean human will, the will of man could possibly mean by your works. It means that by your own human effort, 
It means that you cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot wish your way into heaven. You cannot will your way into heaven. No amount of good deeds will ever get you in. Your best works are but filthy rags. You couldn't work your way to heaven. You couldn't will your way to heaven any more than you could will yourself to be on the top of the Empire State Building. Right? You couldn't wish your way to heaven any more than you could wish or will your way to be the next MVP of the Super Bowl. All right, except maybe for this guy right here. Right. But the idea is that you just can't do that, right? You can't wish your way into heaven any more than you could wish for a unicorn to come out of fairy tale land and ride you around the streets of Santa Clarita. Right? And you just can't do it. There is nothing you can do on your own. So the question is rightly asked, if it's not of my bloodline, if it's not of my desire of the flesh, if it's not by the works of my own hands, what is salvation by my friends, the end of verse 13 says, it is by the will of God. It is not you, it's him. It's not your doing, it's his doing. It's not your power, it's his power. Your will is not just out of order, it's inoperative. It's not just weakened, it's incapacitated. Your will is not just broken, it's dead. Unconditional election is God choosing to save you in spite of you. It's God's choice based on nothing you have done, but based on his own good pleasure. God doesn't need your swing vote. You are not even registered to vote. You understand, again, that's how Arminians think of it. God voted for you. Satan voted against you. You cast the last vote. Well, that's not unconditional election, and that's not the grace of God. And I'm saying you're not even registered to vote. You're not even a citizen of heaven. This is not you electing God. This is God electing you. This is Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And on that day that Lazarus lay in the grave, he had no will of his own. By the fourth day, his flesh was literally rotting away. The only condition that was at work was the Lord of life choosing to go to that grave on that day. And by his own sovereign will, he raised up Lazarus from the grave. There were no conditions that Lazarus had ever done that caused Jesus to choose him. You could not say that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that Lazarus would become alive. And so he went back in history past and chose to make him alive. That's ridiculous. He chose to raise him because that was the unconditional work of Christ. A second truth about election that we see in the Gospel of John, number two, election is being born of the Spirit by the Spirit. Turn to John chapter 3, and let's look at this familiar text between Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, to ask him some questions. And in John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this says you've got to be born again, then you see it. You don't see it, and then you go get born again. No, you can't even see it unless you have been born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what that means is to be born of water in verse 5 and to be born of the Spirit. In this context, it means that to, to have your soul cleansed. There's a, there's, a, there's a cleansing effect that the gospel has in the atoning work of Christ over the dead sinfulness of man. And this is a work of spiritual renewal wrought by the Holy Spirit. This is the act of regeneration. And when a person is born again, there is a spiritual washing of the soul, which is accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. This is what it means to be born of the Spirit. This is what it means to be a born-again believer. And you cannot do this on yourself. You, cannot, you, you didn't choose your physical birth. How many of you chose the day of your birth? Today, I'm thinking I'm going to come out and have this be my birthday. Now, you had no ability. I mean, you might have kicked a little and elbowed a little, right? But you were kind of unconscious in the idea of you actually deciding the day of your birth. You didn't decide to be conceived in the womb. You didn't decide to be born. It just happened. And in the same way, spiritually speaking, this privilege does not belong to you to be spiritually reborn. This privilege belongs to the one who gave you life. 
and to be born again happens instantaneously. Just like Jesus saying to Lazarus, come forth. And he came. It happened in a moment in time. Please note that it didn't take moments for Lazarus to come forth. It didn't take days for him to come out of the grave. This is not an infusion of grace over time. No justification, regeneration, the act of salvation happens in a moment in time. And you may not know that exact moment when it happened, when you were born again, but rest assured it is not a process. It is not something that you work toward. It is not an accumulation of good works. It is not necessarily even a prayer that you pray. There was a point in time when you were blind and then God made you alive so you could see. There was a point in time when you were lost, but then you were found. There was a point in time when you were dead, but you were made alive. This is a supernatural work of God. We could never do this on our own. This is something that only God can do. Look down at chapter 6 of John. John 6 as we teach again about the Spirit giving life, John 6 and verse 63, John 6, 63, again, the Lord Jesus says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Question, how much help is the flesh? Zero. It's said with emphasis. Jesus is saying, look, if you're born again, it's all the Spirit. In fact, the flesh is no help. Sometimes we think, well, it's 90% God. 10% me, 99% God, and 1% me. No, it's all of God and none of you. That's saving grace. That's faith alone in Christ alone, right? That's grace alone. The new birth is an e eternal work that affects us at the deepest level of our soul. It's not just something that puts a shine on the outward veneer of our life and the facade of our lives. It's something deep down in the heart of a man. You can't change your heart. It's wicked and it's evil. God changes the heart. He changes the soul. It's, it's, it's the idea of the, the life of God coming into the soul of a man. And he indwells you with the person of Jesus Christ and he takes residence up in your life. This indeed is an eternal work, which means that once you've been born again, you cannot be unborn. This eternal life that comes to you and the person of Jesus resides in you. He takes up habitat in you. He remains in you. And so we have a heavenly being that is now living inside of us while we're still living on this earth. So let me ask you, have you been born again? Has the nature of your soul been changed from death to life? Has the vacuum of your heart been filled with the love of God? Have you tasted of the goodness of God? Have you been set free from all of your guilt and all of your shame? Have you received Christ as a free gift? Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord? Have you been adopted into his family? Are you feasting at his table? Because at some point, I don't want the doctrine of unconditional election to confuse you. Just come. Come to Christ. And he will by no means cast you out. If you're getting tripped up in the theology of are you a Calvinist or Arminian, just forget about it. And just be like, I need to be born again. I'm a sinner. And I come to Christ on this day. And I repent of all my sins. And I'm asking God to save my soul. The third truth about unconditional election is this. Number three, election is a gift from the Father to the Son. Look at John chapter 6 again, verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again, we see the balance here. Not saying that I think Jesus is half Calvinist and half Arminian. I think that it's clear where he stands. But he is saying here, look, just come. Whoever comes can come. But he, before that, he does say, hey, you know what? If you do come, it's because the Father gave you to me. And despite the fact that many will reject Christ, Christ is not deterred. He is not discouraged. He is not in disarray. Christ is devoted to his mission. Christ is determined to do exactly what the Father has called him to do. Jesus is dead set on saving all of those that the Father has given to him. The question that should be asked here is then, who comes? Who is coming to Christ? And the answer is, all that the Father gives to me will come. This is not a statement of potential. This is not a statement of possibility 
or probability. This is a statement of sovereign control, sovereign power, sovereign grace, sovereign enabling, and sovereign election. The question that is so often asked, did you choose God or did God choose you? Well, I believe that the Bible clearly teaches that God chose you and he chose you first. And we'll look at that verse in just a moment. But this is where R.C. Sproul writes on this passage. He says, quote, the vast majority of Christians today are what we call semi-Pelagian or Arminian in their theology. They read the statement of Jesus here in John 6, 37. They read the statement this way. All who come to me, the Father will give to me. That's Arminianism. We come, we decide, then the Father recognizes our decision and makes us a gift to his Son, but that's not the way Jesus taught it. Jesus said, the ones whom the Father has given to me will come to me, every one of them. So the Father gives us to the Son first, through predestination and election, and then you and I come to him as the Spirit of God moves in our hearts and regenerates our souls and makes us alive together with him. Salvation is an unconditional gift. This is an unconditional grace. This is an unconditional election where God foreknew you and he predestined you and he called you to be his very own. Another aspect of election that we see in John, number four, election points to the divine prerogative of God. Please turn to John 12, 36 through 40, as we look at how this unconditional election points to the divine prerogative of God. Here Jesus says in verse 36 of John 12, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, though he had done so many, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Well, what's going on in this passage? Unconditional election is based on God's doing and not your own. Jesus had been doing many signs before the Jews, but many of the Jews still did not believe in him. Why? Because they didn't believe. Why didn't they believe? Because seeing a sign is not a guarantee of your salvation. Seeing a sign does not convert you. God must open your eyes through the gospel, not simply by you seeing another miracle. Sovereign grace is key. Not whether or not you've seen a miracle of Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that? Because you may have never seen a miracle. You don't have to. We could see the miracle of the resurrection through the scripture, but what we're saying is, even though Jesus did all those miracles, that doesn't guarantee they're coming to salvation. God must choose to open the eyes of a person. And he might choose to use the miracle as a means to an end, but the miracle that he performs in and of itself will not save you. In fact, this text says in verse 38, the arm of the Lord must be revealed to you. So that's saying it's not you seeing it, it's God revealing it. God must reveal it to you. The arm of the Lord there is a, is a reference to his strength, his power, his grace, and it's something that he must reveal to you. And then in verse 39, it says that they could not believe. Please note that this is an issue of inability. A depraved sinner cannot believe on his own. Why can't unbelievers see? Because God has not chosen to op open some eyes. This text says that some have been blinded and their hearts have been hardened. This is a picture of God's judgment on those who rejected Christ. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus announces is happening to that very generation of those very Jews who chose to reject him and now they're under judgment having their, their, their eyes blinded and their hearts hardened. Here, we see not only the doctrine of unconditional election, but the difficult doctrine of reprobation. Reprobation 
is the biblical teaching that God rejects or repudiates some persons to eternal condemnation in a way that is parallel but opposite to him ordaining others to salvation. When we think about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, and when we think about the fact God said to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, we have to realize that God passes by some persons, like Esau, destining them to destruction rather than to salvation. In this context, the question is immediately asked, does God determine the destinies of individuals who go to heaven or hell in exactly the same way? If God elects some for heaven without the consideration of what they have done, whether good or bad, does he also assign some for hell in the same way? And the answer is no. Let me explain. Paul's chief point of Romans 9 is that salvation is accomplished entirely by God's mercy and not to any good that might be imagined to reside in us. The question is whether this can be said of the reprobate as well. Has God consigned them to hell apart from anything that they've done, that is, apart from their deserving of it? And my answer would be that those who go to hell do so because they deserve that punishment as the wage of their sin. If you're going to heaven, you are getting what you don't deserve. And if you're going to hell, then you are getting what you do deserve. Both unconditional election and divine reprobation are in many ways the same. Both flow out of the eternal counsel or will of God rather than the will of man. Both have their ultimate purpose in the revelation of God's glory. Both are God's prerogative. But here's the difference. Unconditional election is active while divine reprobation is passive. Here's what I mean. The reason why some believe in the gospel and are saved is that God actively intervenes in their lives in such a way to bring them to saving faith. He does this by the new birth or by regeneration. But those who are lost, and this is the crucial point, are not caused by God to disbelieve. They reject God on their own, and so God passively allows them to reap the consequences of their sin. They do that all by themselves. To ordain their end, God needs only to withhold the special grace of regeneration. In election, God actively intervenes with that special grace to rescue those who deserve destruction. Whereas in reprobation, God passively allows some to receive the just punishment they deserve for their sins. What we're saying is, if anybody goes to heaven, it's all grace. If anybody goes to hell, it's their fault. God doesn't send them there against their will or against their practice of sin, but rather withholds grace and allows them to pursue their end, and then they get hell for their own sin. So what we're saying is that unconditional election is a picture of grace, and we see it in Lazarus in this way. God could have left Lazarus in the grave. Jesus could have walked by the tomb and let Lazarus rot. There was nothing that Lazarus had done to deserve resurrection. He deserved, as we all do, to die because the wages of his sin, as is ours, is death. But the Lord Jesus intervened. He was active. He showed up in a special way and gave sovereign grace to Lazarus that he didn't show to others in the tomb. Jesus passed over the others, but he chose by his own divine prerogative to raise Lazarus from the dead. And my friends, spiritually speaking, that's what Jesus has done for you. He has predestined that you would have life. He chose you out of all the people in the world. He sovereignly selected you for eternal life. He intervened in your fallen condition and he made you his very own. And praise God for his grace. Like I'm so undeserving of his grace. And you would want to say here, but that's not fair. And I would say, you're right. It's not fair. And that's why it's called grace. 
If we all got we deserve, then we all burn in hell. The fact that God chooses to save a single person is an evidence of his grace. That in Christ you are getting what you don't deserve, and it's all by God's grace, and it's all by his divine prerogative. One final emphasis on unconditional election in John, and we've kind of already alluded to it a couple of times. Number five, election was not you choosing God, but God choosing you. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This pretty much sums it up with great clarity. Jesus is saying to his disciples and subsequently to all of us who were his followers that he chose us first. I mean, think about it. When Jesus walked around on this earth and he selected the 12 apostles, please know the apostles did not apply for a job. They didn't sign up to work for Jesus. No, Jesus went out and handpicked each of the 12, and he said to them, you follow me. And they came because God enabled them to come. And so none of us here this morning would have ever chosen God, chose, chose God on our own. We were dead. We were sinners. We liked our sin. We were in bondage to our sin. We were of our father, the devil. We hated Christ. And then it happened. Somewhere along the way, the wind of the Holy Spirit started to blow over your life. Somewhere along the way, you didn't know where it came from or where it was going, but the wind of the Spirit blows wherever it wishes. And before you know it, God grabbed a hold of your heart, and he showed you his love for lost and dying sinners. And you were born again, not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. You were selected as a gift predetermined by the Father to give to the Son. And the glory of the Lord was revealed to us. He opened our eyes and softened our hearts. And he chose us for salvation. And he appointed us to bear fruit that would last. Unconditional election is God's choosing of you because he can. Because he wanted to. Because he determined to. And it had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with the fact that he knew that you would be a good person because you're not and I'm not apart from him. God has not shown mercy to everyone. God's wrath and his power and his patience and his glory and his grace are all displayed in this wondrous doctrine of unconditional election. Now let me share, share with you some response just quickly. How are we to appreciate the benefits of unconditional election? This last point Number one, election is humbling. This is not a doctrine that should make those of us who are in Christ prideful or smug. Instead, this doctrine ought to humble us. It's not that I made a better decision than someone else. It's that God made a decision to save me, and I can't figure out why. All to his glory. I am nothing but a dead, depraved sinner. This doctrine doesn't make us proud Calvinists. It makes us humble people saying, I'm so undeserving, I'm amazed by God's grace. Number two, election encourages our love for God. If we had some part to play in our salvation, then our love for God would be diminished. We would love ourselves just a little bit more. I know God loves me, I know Satan hates me, but man, I'm glad I made a good choice. Boy, I, I finally decided that I would follow Jesus and that was my will. No, that would diminish your love for God because if you understand total depravity for what it is, you're like, oh my word, I was completely dead. I had nothing. I didn't even have the ability to stick my arm in the life raft. I was dead at the bottom of the lake and God reached down and he raised me up. Oh, I love him so. I can't believe he did that for me. Number three, election enriches our worship. Having a higher view of God enhances our worship, it causes us to fall on our faces and say, I'm so unworthy, but still you love me. That God demonstrated his love for me that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. If you're in Christ today, this ought to enhance your worship. Nobody today is upset at God about anything if you're in Christ, but you're amazed by his love for you and for any lost sinner who's come to faith. Number four, election aids us in our evangelism. It aids us in our evangelism. Most Arminians say, well, I can't believe in a God like that. How could you go and do evangelism? Because God's already chosen who he has and hasn't chosen others. So how can you do it? Because I have more confidence in God than I have in human flesh. Think about it. If you're an Arminian, 
and you're evangelizing, you're like, oh, I hope this person chooses Jesus. I hope that they'll finally decide to choose Jesus. They'll never decide because they're dead. But if you have faith in a sovereign God, you can say, I know God will call those that he's predestined to himself. So I'm going door to door with confidence. I'm going to Kubamitwe, Africa, with confidence that as I declare the gospel, God will draw some out of the darkness and into light. I have every confidence that that's what God does, and my job is just to be faithful. It's not about me choosing what the nature of God is and salvation, and it's not about me choosing for anybody else or even for myself. My job is just to respond, respond to what God's doing, to be faithful, to proclaim the gospel, to call all people everywhere to repent. You never hear me in this church say, if you're of the elect, I want you to repent and believe today. No, I'm, I say, like the Bible says, whoever will come today, come. Whoever you are, whatever your background is, whatever your understanding of theology is, just understand this, you're dead without Christ. He died for sinners like you. That if you would repent and believe in him, he would by no means cast you out. All we're saying is, God's doing it. Behind the scenes, it's all God. It's for his glory it's his work, it's his power, it's his regenerating work, it's his unconditional election of you. So come to Christ today, and he will not cast you out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dig down in the Gospel of John, as well as what we've seen from Romans 9 and Ephesians 1, and we just confess, God, it is humbling to try to understand these doctrines. And I don't want to appear as some know-it-all. I, I have deep convictions, Lord, because I, that's the way I understand the word of God. And I want to stand on these truths. And yet at the same time, there ought to be a, a brokenness and a humility to realize that we can't understand it fully, though we can declare it faithfully. And so I pray, God, if there be anyone here today who's lost, that you would draw them out of darkness into light. If there's some Christian here today who's just confused or confounded, I pray that you would give them grace to understand the gospel and to just give you glory for saving their soul. I pray that these doctrines would have an impact on our church and how we do evangelism and how we do missions, that we would walk around with a greater humility, a deeper desire to worship and exalt Christ, a greater passion for the missionary call to call all people to come to you knowing that it's your work, your choice, your power, your grace, and it's your doing. And so we acknowledge that you're free to do whatever you please. And we pray that you would exalt yourself in our hearts and in our lives as we consider these things today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.